0: And could you join me in thanking Steve for the wonderful job he's done in hosting us? Thank you so much. Uh, Well, this evening we have the opportunity of talking about the power of slow and steady faithfulness. And so uh, I would love to begin uh, by talking about uh, this individual right here. Oh, for those of you who are guests from the UK and perhaps New Zealand, this is our beloved Fred Rogers, who had a 33 year run of a television program called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So, 33 years means a couple generations of kids watched this guy in his children's program, and every single day he had the same entrance routine. Some of you know what this is, right? Music begins to play, piano music, the door swings open, Fred Rogers walks in, singing the theme song. That's all, okay. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, and as he descends the stairs, he takes off his suit jacket, uh, opens up a closet door, hangs up the suit jacket, puts on a zip-up sweater, zips up the sweater, and then as he continues his theme song, walks around to a bench, sits down, takes off his dress shoes, puts on his tennis shoes, laces up the tennis shoes as he continues to sing, won't you be, won't you be, please won't you be my neighbor. And Fred Rogers used that exact, identical entrance drill for 33 stinking years. 1968 to when the program wrapped up in uh, 2001. I mean, try that on for eight years. And double that to 16, double it again to 32, and you're closing in on the length of time he sang the same song and walked down the, same, the very same steps. I mean, just curious, you know, after eight years, wouldn't you be tempted just to walk in, jump over the couch and say, let's just get this started? All right. Why? Why the same entrance drill for 33 years? See, Fred Rogers understood that many of his young viewers came from structured families where there was order and there was structure and there was discipline. You woke up in the morning, there was going to be a parent there. Someone was going to set the Cheerios out on the counter in the morning with some milk. Someone was going to send you off to school. When you went to bed at night, someone was going to be there to tuck you in. Many of his viewers came from that type of home. And many of Fred Rogers' viewers, he knew that many of them came from absolutely chaotic, unstructured home, and he was the closest thing to structure that they had. And he just taught them that there are certain rhythms of life, when you take your coat off, you hang it up. When you take your shoes off, there's a place for them to go side by side. You see, Fred Rogers believed that the world was not a safe place, and that kids were gonna figure this out pretty quick. They were going to experience loss, they were going to experience anger, they were going to experience fear, and that they needed a coach, they needed a friend, they needed a neighbor to help them process what they were experiencing in a positive way and how to process it in a positive way. And this is how Fred Rogers served families for three decades of his life. And I think that served, is the uh, best word to use. I don't know if you knew this, Fred Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister, ordained by the Presbyterian church to serve families through the medium of uh, television. All right, simple programming, no computer graphics, sock puppets, he wrote and performed uh, many of the musical pieces, four daytime Emmy Awards, Musical guests like Yo-Yo Ma and Wynton Marsalis inducted into the Television Hall of Fame and was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest non-military award that an American can receive. And I don't think it was because any of his single programs were that stellar. It was the consistency. It was the faithfulness. It was that rare and unusual quality of bringing yourself again and again and again and again and again. It's why Fred Rogers is one of my heroes because he models something for me that I desperately need to remember, and it is this, that often my greatest impact and influence will come from showing up and doing something very similar over and over and over and over and over and over again uh, not long ago uh, wrote a book that covers here it's called uh, dream big think small the think small is that the thousand fairly unextraordinary positive steps in the right direction can you tell what uh, critter is carrying the word small across the page It's ants uh, taken from Proverbs, one of King Solomon's proverbs, where King Solomon said, Ants are little creatures, and yet they store up food for the summer. And this was a proverb that a Jewish father would teach his uh, child in an agricultural environment. It's like, watch them, get down on your hands and knees, and watch the ant farm, and they go back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, and they survive this way. It's redundant, it's repetitive, it's a little boring and it is absolutely life-giving. And the reason I wrote that book was because I I believe that faithfulness is underrated, it's under-celebrated. I believe we are part of a culture that is uh, uh, allergic to boredom and addicted to immediacy. I don't think I should say this in Seattle. Amazon Prime has wrecked us. And our expectation, that gap between stimulus and response, wanting something and getting something. And yet, there are just so many areas of life and spiritual development and cultivation that it's just a long road to grow. My friend, so often, goodness grows slow. And so, uh, there's a French uh, theologian. uh, I I quote him in my book. The guy's name is Francois Fenelon, and he says, great acts of virtue are rare because they're so seldom called for. What I think he means by that is if I want to rescue someone from a burning house, it kind of requires a burning house. And that I happen to be walking by or driving by at the precise moment. Great acts of virtue are rare because they're hard to schedule on a Thursday morning between 9 and 10. Great acts of virtue are rare because they are so seldom called for. And he goes on to say this, to do small things that are right continually without being noticed is much more important. Faithfulness in the little things better proves your true love for God. It is the slow, plodding path rather than the passing fit of enthusiasm that matters. It is the slow, plodding. He's writing that in the 1600s. It's the slow, plodding path Path rather than the passing fit of enthusiasm that matters. And all God's people said, bummer. (laughs) Because unfortunately, if he's right, what that means is that I can't give my life totally to God in one fell swoop magical moment. Apparently, there's something about the journey where Christ wants my heart day after day after day after day after day. What if he's right that it is the slow plodding path that greater shows my love and devotion to God. And right about now, more than a couple people in the room are thinking, yes, Jeff, but the Bible, I mean, open the pages of the Bible. It's like the story of the Bible just lurches from miracle to miracle to miracle, from the astronomical to the miraculous to the astounding page after page after page, right? 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 I challenge you to do something. Read the Bible for the boring parts. Those long stretches where people are simply devoted to the normal, the common, the faithful. Uh, some of you uh, are familiar with a character in the Old Testament of our, our Bible. His name is Samuel. Any of you know this character, Samuel. The first time, it's a, the prophet Samuel. The first time we read of Samuel in the Bible, he is not a, a man that is leading Israel. He is, a, he is a boy. Do you know the story? Like, his, his mother has this little boy, Samuel, and she brings him to the tabernacle in the Old Testament and, like, leaves him there, drops him off to be raised at the tabernacle. I don't know about your ministry, but this happens commonly with us. Usually it's around age 13. <laughs> She's yours now she's all yours. Uh, But Samuel is left at the tabernacle. And so literally, it says a boy, a child wearing a priest's outfit, right? And so literally, you're walking around the tabernacle going, whoa. And there's this little kid running around in a priest's outfit. One night, he goes to bed, and he hears this voice, Samuel, Samuel. And he jumps up, and he runs off to Eli the priest. And he says, "Uh, you called me. And Eli goes, yeah, no, I didn't get back to bed. And then he hears the voice again, Samuel. And again, he jumps up and runs off to Eli the priest and says, you called me. And Eli the priest says, no, I didn't. Get back to bed. And a third time, Samuel jumps up, runs off to Eli the priest, says, you called me. And now Eli the priest is getting really creeped out. He goes, okay, the next time you hear that voice, don't come running to me. The next time you hear the voice, say the words. Some of you know the words. Say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And now Samuel goes back to bed. And he hears Samuel, and he says, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening, and all of a sudden you realize this is not simply a boy priest. This is also a boy prophet. God is going to speak to the people on behalf of this little guy. And you open your Bible, and you go, oh, man, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And what happens next is that Samuel disappears for three or four chapters of the story. It's like, boom, gone. Israel goes to war. The Ark of the Covenant gets stolen. It travels all around Philistia. And then next time Samuel appears, chapters later, he is a grown man leading the nation in a national revival. And now rather than his childhood voice, he is now using his mature adult voice in order to guide the heart of his people. And you go, man, that is an awesome start. We have two incidents hearing God's voice as a child, leading a national revival, and you wonder, what will happen next? And what happens next is this. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. What? He can't be old. Where where did his life go? And his life went here, the verse before. Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in those places. This is where Samuel's life went Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel. In those places, round and round, redundant and repetitive and faithful. I believe Samuel's circuit, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, I believe this is where you would find Samuel where he's 30, when he's 33 years old, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah. I believe he's traveling these same roads, arriving in these same villages when he's 46, when he's 52, and when he's 63. That's where the guy's life went. And I'm sure that there were critical court cases in a village setting that Samuel was responsible to attending to, a, uh, an infraction between two families, and Samuel steps in and tries to, to bring the relationship uh, to a place where it's reconciled before this misunderstanding turns into a tribal war, and that kind of thing happened in a clannish culture, I believe in addition to bringing judgment, I believe that uh, Samuel was also giving spiritual direction. You know, uh, uh, 12 miles from here, on my way in, I noticed a temple uh, to the god Baal. None of you are involved in building that, right? None of you are traveling there to worship at that site, right? There's spiritual direction, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah. This, my friends, is Samuel's circuit. And we read, You say, well, didn't he anoint David as king? God pulls him out of retirement to do that in his senior years. That's where his life went. The scripture says that when Samuel died, all Israel mourned because of what he had meant to them in consistent, faithful stability, which pretty much had to do with going round and round, redundant, repetitive, to three different cities. Question, turning this into a conversation about generosity, do you have a circuit as far as your generosity is concerned? Uh, a, a church, a couple mission organizations, some things that have touched your heart that you believe in, that you step forward and fund over and 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 over. Is there a circuit that you are committed to? It's one of my uh, heroes. His name is John. Uh, uh, Charles Mooley, Charles is in back. He's an independently wealthy businessman in Kenya. God led him to begin uh, liquidating his assets and begin to take in street kids and uh, uh, clothing, um, housing, educating, and presenting the life-changing message of Jesus to literally thousands of kids at this point. Uh, Charles was in town a couple months ago. There was someone from his organization. We're at a restaurant, and the man from his organization said, Hey, Bill. He mentioned Bill in our congregation who had passed away, tragically killed in a motorcycle accident in August, this past August. And he said, he talked about Bill. He said, by the way, Bill sent us a $75 check in 2007. That was 11 years ago. Alert the media. You know, a 75. And then he said, but he then sent us a $75 check every single month over the last 11 years. You you, you do the math, $75 a month, it's it's about $900 a year. We're closing in on 10 grand over a 11-year period of time. That was part of Bill's circuit, this $75 a month, over and over and over and over and over again. Now, I know that that I give you that figure simply because that's the story I'm walking out of last month. I know that that uh, amount is uh, wildly inappropriate for some of your income levels, so I will invite you to add zeros. It would be appropriate for your situation. (laughs) I'll help you with the math. $750 a month, you close in on $100,000 over 11 years. $7,500 a month to an organization, you're closing in on a million dollars over 11 years. But it's just this consistent faithful, consistent faithful, consistent faithful. By the way, there is another very beautiful kind of generosity. The other very beautiful kind of generosity is... um, The random acts of kindness, spontaneous, boom, you see something, you have the money, you step in, you meet the need, it's beautiful. These can be God-ordained, they can be God-orchestrated. That just ain't this. This is something... What Bill did with Mooley Children's Family, it, it, there was nothing spontaneous about it, and there was nothing random about it. It was just this clockwork, $75, $75, $75, uh, basically 10 grand over $11, my friends, with pizza money. But it, it adds, it adds up. Consistent and faithful, adds up tremendously over a lengthy period of time. Do, do the spontaneous random. But what if the spontaneous random is the icing on the cake, but the cake is this consistent, faithful circuit? And so I just ask you again, do you have a circuit? And would God be pleased during this event in Seattle this week to whisper to you and to challenge you to up your game in relationship to the giving circuit, the Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah circuit that you have. Now, as I'm talking about this uh, concept of redundant, reliable, consistent, again and again and again, as far as Biblical stewardship, turning to the scriptures. This is just basic, basic, basic. And so as I share this, I just know that a lot of you are going, like, Jeff, come on, man. Like, 40 years ago, that was like the first step in learning financial money management. But my friends, sometimes the basics get lost along the way. And sometimes that which is like most basic and most essential sometimes fades into the background. And so I, I mentioned this, um, not because you don't know it, but because I think it's a reminder that we can all need from time to time. So let's be chewing on what I just said about consistent, reliable, redundant uh, generosity and wondering, is there biblical precedent for that? The answer is, I think so. So uh, there's a map here. I want you to see this map outlines three cities in a first century church crisis. Jerusalem, lower left-hand corner, there is a famine that is going to hit Judea. Most of the believers, most of the Jesus followers living in Judea come from the same ethnic background. If you are part of the church of Jerusalem, chances are that you are Jewish, all right? The Jesus movement has spread Corinth off to the left-hand side, if you belong to the church of Corinth, chances are you are not Jewish, you are non-Jewish, you are Gentile. Paul is writing to the Corinthians to motivate their generosity from Ephesus just across the Aegean Sea. And he's writing about giving to an offering down in Jerusalem during this famine. Basically, it is not simply, it is not simply a famine relief offering. It's to heal a growing rift in the church between the Gentile group and the Jewish group because quite frankly, the Jewish group, the law keepers, they were a little suspect that these former idol worshipers could really be all in. And Paul's attitude and his belief was, when I... Orchestrate this elaborate offering, chances are they will become firmer believers that you're all in. So, what massive strategy is Paul going to come up with? This is what he advises the Corinthians on the first day of every week. Each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, greater income, greater amount, lower income, lower amount, saving it up so that when I show up in town, I'm not going to have to collect an offering. Just that beauty there on the first day of. He, he, he doesn't pick the amount they're supposed to give, but he picks the day and he picks the frequency for them. The first day of the week, we believe, Sunday. So on Sunday when you gather, bring something for this offering. Okay, what about next Sunday? Bring something else for this offering. How about the following Sunday? Bring something else for this offering. How about the next Sunday? What if we're not interested anymore? Ah, it doesn't have to be interesting to be good. It doesn't have to be interesting to be good. I'm not particularly interested in brushing my teeth. I do it from time to time. (laughs) It, it, It doesn't have to be interesting to be good. And so right out of the gate of all of the fund raising strategies Paul could use, this was his strategy. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, he says, I'm going to tell you exactly what I told the churches in the region of Galatian to do once a week, bring something, but do it again and 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 again. And again. The individual gifts might be fairly unremarkable. Their sum over time might be astounding. And they go, well, that was pretty easy to do. They didn't do it. That's Paul's encouragement at the end of 1 Corinthians. The end of 2 Corinthians, a letter that came later. Chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians are some of the best teaching on biblical stewardship we have in our Bible. It's written to a people that promised a gift and they never delivered on it. And 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you have those beautiful chap those beautiful words where 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 Paul says, you know, I want you to know about the grace that God gave the Macedonian churches up north out of their most extreme poverty, their overflowing joy welled up into rich generosity. They gave as much as they were able and beyond their ability. He's using the example of the churches in the north to motivate the churches in the south. It's that beautiful verse where he says, God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because God is a cheerful giver. Any conversation about grace is a conversation about that aspect of God's character that is wildly generous. One of the first verses a little kid learns in a Sunday school class is, For God so loved the world that he... He gave, he loves, and he gives. God loves a cheerful giver because when we become cheerful givers, his character is being modeled and replicated in us. Second Corinthians 8, to the church that didn't give, that promised a gift and didn't. Chapter 9 is where Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might become spiritually rich. It is grace-infused. It is tasting the grace of God and attempting to embody the grace of God in a way that turns me into a gracious, giving person. And I mention that because uh, that yeah, bring a gift on Sunday, bring a gift on Sunday, bring a gift on Sunday. Bring, I mean, Paul's model for that church in Corinth, you kinda go, well, isn't that legalism? It might be, but it doesn't have to be, listen. Legalism has as much to do with attitude, more to do with attitude than it does behavior. Bible reading, prayer, giving, anything I'm doing to try to impress God to love me becomes legalism. When I try to earn grace, any redundant activity becomes legalism. And so consistent giving, consistent Bible reading, consistent prayer All of these can be disciplines done out of response to God's grace and at the same time, they can be the work that we attempt to do to win God's affection and one is legalism and one isn't. My friends, what I would would suggest to you is that those of us who have deeply been touched by God's grace, this should fuel a disciplined lifestyle. Not to earn God's love but because of it. Not to earn grace but because Of grace, those of us captivated by grace should seize disciplines as a right response to a loving and generous Father. But I want to go back to that quote by Francois Fenelon where he said, This great acts of virtue are rare because they are so seldom called for. Of course, he wrote that like 400 years ago, but you know what he was talking about, don't you? You know what he was talking about, don't you? He was talking about giving your finishing medal away at the Boston Marathon. That's what he was talking about. Listen, for some of you that were not with us this morning, Brent shared a powerful story, training for the Boston Marathon, qualifying for the Boston Marathon, running for the Boston Marathon, finishing, getting the finisher's medal. There's an explosion running into a weeping woman and taking off the medal that he loved more than his car, his house, his firstborn child, and (laughs) placing that on her neck and generous giving generously provided kleenex for every table because it was a tissue moment and something in us surges and going like, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. Well, to do that, you have to encounter a fairly specific set of circumstances. Number one, you have to train for a marathon. I thought about this all afternoon. I broke it into steps. (laughs) Those of you who are copious note takers, here you go. Uh, Step number one, you need to train for a marathon. Uh, Step number two, you need to enroll in a marathon uh, where there will be an explosion, but finish before the explosion. Number three, uh, you have to have a finisher's medal that means more to you than life itself. Uh, Step number four, you need to find the weeping woman. Not only find the weeping woman, but the weeping woman who will post something on Facebook that will go viral. (laughs) I guess what I'm saying is, is that beautiful, phenomenal story is fairly unreplicatable on a weekly basis. But I thought the most powerful moment of Brent's story was this, when he said that story, that incident, that God-ordained, orchestrated interaction was 25 years in the making. Because 25 years ago, Brent and his wife opened their hands to a loving father and they said, we will begin to give month after month after month after month after month an amount that stretches us and pushes us and feels a little bit unrealistic. Doing that, month after month after month after month, puts your heart in a position to give away a finisher's medal that means more than life itself. I guess what I'm saying here is, when we commit ourselves to the ordinary, the redundant, repetitive, ordinary. Often, God is pleased pleased to do the extraordinary in the midst of the ordinary. There was another type of interview that could have been done today. Steve could have had someone sit here and said, you know, uh, we have uh, two extra chairs. You know, we just want to talk to Fred and Marsha today. Tell us a little bit about your generosity story. And they said, well, we didn't have the faith to begin to give uh, 10% of our income away, so we gave uh, 3% of our income away. And then we stretched up to 5, and then we stretched up to 10. And then we decided to keep going one percentage point a year. And we made it to 16% that we were giving away. But then we decided two percentage points and went from 16 to 18. And right now By God's grace, through faith, we're giving 22% of our income away. That is another story. It's just a boring story. It's just not that interesting. No Kleenex required for that story. And someone's going like, okay, um, I flew from New Zealand for that. And I just have two burning questions right now. Uh, What time is the break? And will they be serving chocolate chip muffins? Now, if I ask you, the marathon medal miracle story, is that more interesting than someone in the slog bumping up a couple percentage points a year? Which story is more interesting? It's not a trick question. (laughs) The marathon miracle medal is far more interesting. Here's a question. Which story is better? they got to think about that a little bit. I think both stories are beautiful. But I'm not certain that the second story, the metal marathon miracle story, always happens without the first story. I happen to think that move a percentage point to a year, to a year, to a year. That may be the better story because it puts our heart in a condition to seize... The wonderful, wild, spontaneous opportunities that God may be intending to orchestrate through our lives. What if we are able to seize the extraordinary? Because we've committed ourselves to the ordinary, the redundant, the repetitive, the circuit. Let's close by coming back to this dude, Fred Rogers. Uh, He used one opening song the entire run of his program, 33 years. Uh, It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor, Would You Be Mine. His closing song changed a few times over the years. But the song that he was using as his program came to a close And he went through the process in reverse, takes off the sweater, puts on the suit jacket, takes off the tennis shoes, puts on his dress shoes. The song that he sang as he closed the program was this song. And I'll be back when the day is new. And I'll have more ideas for you. And you'll have things you wanna talk about. I will too. But it was a promise. I'll be back, I'll be back, I'll be back, I'll be back. I'm kind of in a rut at church. A lot of times I close in prayer and after a blessing, I'm in the rut of just saying, hey, we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. Man, in a world of broken relationships, and businesses that merge in hive-off departments, and that was your company, but that's not your company anymore kids with their parents' marriages that are falling apart just that simple word, "We'll see you next week," is my promise. I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. I just want to press you one more time. Do you have a circuit? A consistent, faithful, repetitive, redundant circuit. And could it be that this week, in the beautiful city of Seattle, under the care and guidance of a wonderful organization called Generous Giving, that God will nudge you to up your game, to get sharper, more intentional, even more faithful with the circuit that he is calling you to. What's it look like for you to pray to your heavenly father? I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back.